visiting. We're particularly glad that you are here, grateful that we get to worship together uh, this morning. Uh, thankfully, I'm not preaching, and thankfully, uh, Ben Davison is preaching this morning. Ben is our intern uh, at the Divinity Schools. This is the second year being with us, and uh, is from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, uh, will bring God's word to us this morning. Uh, grateful as he, he uh, in his work with us, he works particularly with our uh, college students and, and young adults. So, Ben, thank you for bringing God's word. This past week, I was gathered with a group of you from Blacknall to share a meal. And during that time, we were reflecting on the season of Advent. Our group leader suggested that Advent is a season where we are intentionally asked to think about what role waiting holds in our faith. In light of this, we were invited to think about the things we were waiting for in our own lives, and then to place them in the larger story of our faith. So we began to share what we were waiting for. At first, there was that lingering, awkward silence that's always present before someone shares in a group. But this silence wasn't actually that awkward or uncomfortable. It took on a different tone in this group. It was a contemplative silence. It was a waiting silence that's appropriate for the waiting season of Advent. Then people began to share. Waiting to get that academic post that is well-deserved but hard to come by in the current moment waiting to hear back from the dream school or the dream program, waiting for the treatment to come and waiting for that person to finally leave the hospital and come back home, waiting for the loved one to finally make a necessary change in their life so that their patterns will stop wreaking havoc on the lives of those around them. Waiting for the day when the iPhone message will stop popping up that another pastor is exposed or another church scandal is here. As we continue to share, I was struck by one woman's honest plea. I'm simply just waiting for Jesus to come back again. I wonder what you're waiting for this Advent season. We're waiting. This Advent, I've been reading a book by an Episcopal priest named Fleming Rutledge, uh, it's conveniently titled Advent. It seemed appropriate for this time. And I've been struck by the way that she describes this season. She writes in her book, In Advent, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in the present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. She goes on to write, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but the season of Advent? I love the way she frames Advent because every Christmas, churches and Christians fall prey to a fundamental temptation of Advent, which is simply to make it into a nostalgic season where we reminisce about the history of the baby Jesus who was born in a manger. And while Jesus' birth is a true and integral part of Advent, Advent is also about forming our lives around a reality that Jesus, who came to us as a baby, is one day coming back again in glory to make all things new. 
Advent isn't simply a countdown to Christmas morning where we celebrate Jesus coming as a baby. It is about waiting for the day when our future king will once again come to restore all that is broken. It's a fundamental disposition of the Christian life. And it's why someone like Fleming Rutledge can write that the church knows no other time but Advent. We are always living in the waiting. And if that's true, then we can be honest about the pain in our world and about the things that we are waiting for. I want you to listen to a story about a man whose life was constituted by waiting. This man was waiting for God, and eventually he got to hold the thing that he was waiting for in his arms. So listen to the book that we love, to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. You're welcome to find it in a Bible near you, or you can simply just listen along. Listen to the word of the Lord. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praise God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and turned to his mother Mary and said, This child is destined for the falling and for the rising of many who are in Israel, and to be a sign who will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a soul will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you catch the scene? Mary and Joseph are traveling to Jerusalem to dedicate their son to the Lord. And when they enter into the temple, they discover that there's a man named Simeon who's been watching and waiting for the Lord's Messiah for a long, long time. Now, before we look at Simeon, we need to pay close attention to the scene that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in the temple of the Lord, and the gospel writer Luke is making sure that we understand that everything that is happening here is explicitly Jewish. Did you notice how many times Luke mentions things were done according to the law of the Lord or according to the law of Moses? In my middle school English class, I was taught, one of the first rhetorical devices I was taught was the device of repetition. If someone says something over and over, they probably think it's important and wants you to know that it's important. 
And it seemed that the gospel writer Luke was paying attention in his middle school English class because he keeps reminding us that everything that is happening is according to what has been prescribed in the law of the Lord. Luke does not want us to miss out on the fundamental reality that a new thing is happening through the child Jesus, but this new thing that is happening only makes sense within the larger story of Israel. Luke is adamant that we understand that the incarnation and the promise of deliverance does not appear in a vacuum. The story of God coming into the world does not come out of nowhere, but is deeply embedded in a story that's been going on for a long, long time. Luke wants us to know that there's a path of continuity that flows from the temple, the visible place where God resided with his people, to the child, who we would call Emmanuel, God with us. There's a path of continuity. God has been with us forever, and now it's present in the child Jesus. The hope that is present in Jesus is connected to Israel's memory and to their history and to the promise that's been given to them. The hope is then reimagined through Israel's history and is manifested in the child Jesus. And that's why the church, just like this morning, finds itself reading from the book of Isaiah and other prophets all along the way because they understand that Advent and the fulfillment of the promise only makes sense within the larger story of what God has been doing through the people of Israel. And it's in this setting that we encounter this man named Simeon. Simeon is waiting. We are told that Simeon is eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel, but don't get any wrong ideas that Simeon was living in a calm and peaceful world where waiting for God just made sense. The Jewish people at that time were deeply fractured on religious and political lines. They lived under the oppressive hand of the Romans, which led to all kinds of ideas about how to best survive this rule. They lived in a time of economic upheavals, racial and ethnic tensions that flared, diseases and health crises. Does that sound familiar to anyone? In Simeon's day, there were a group of Jews known as the Zealots, and this group didn't care much for the idea of waiting for God. Waiting for God to bring about the consolation of Israel didn't make a lot of sense to them, so they tried to restore Israel through their own violent and aggressive means. In contrasted to these Jewish freedom fighters is Simeon, the one on whom the Holy Spirit rests, the one who is guided by the Spirit, and the one who represents Israel at its very best. Devout, obedient, and constant in prayer, he's the one who trusts in God's deliverance and not his own ability to bring about that deliverance. And I imagine to Simeon's great surprise, the deliverance of God does not come in the form of a mighty warrior or a conquering king, but meets him in the form of a fragile child born to a group of poor parents. Mary and Joseph could not have been much to behold as they came into the temple that morning. They came bearing pigeons and turtle doves, which were sacrifices that were relegated to those who were the most poor and those who were not well-connected. And the Messiah whom Simeon is praising, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, is simply just a child. And upon seeing this child, Simeon declares that he has been dismissed in peace, 
because he has seen God's salvation. But the strange thing is, is that Simeon didn't really get to see the story of salvation played out. He saw a glimpse of what was to come. He saw a child and not a restored Israel. Now, imagine that you are an avid Colorado Rockies baseball fan. You've been living in Colorado your whole life, you've been watching baseball your entire life, and you've never seen them win a World Series. And somehow, God comes to you in a dream and says, you will not die before you see the salvation of the Colorado Rockies. <laughs> so you start going to every baseball game. You switch your diet to hot dogs, soft pretzels, and popcorn, and you are slogging through every afternoon baseball game at the Colorado Rocky Stadium. And in year two of this time, you've been thinking, you know, this might be our year this year. God suddenly appears to you and says, look to your left. Do you see that young family and the infant child they're holding? One day, that child will be the coach that will take the Colorado Rockies to the World Series. Can you imagine the disappointment? Wouldn't you think that you got ripped off? You're sitting here watching, knowing that it's going to be a long, long time before the Rockies are finally delivered. And here is Simeon, the man of righteousness, praising God after only seeing a future of redemption that would come long after he died. Simeon just saw a glimpse of a promise. And Simeon also had a strange idea of what God's salvation would look like. Simeon speaks of a redemption that is prepared in the presence of all people and that is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And this is so far from the retributive justice that the zealots longed for, the deliverance where the enemies are crushed, the fire comes down, the hammer is dropped. That's not what Simeon envisions. Simeon doesn't find the deliverance longed for by the zealots, but instead he sings of a future a peace and reconciliation for all, where God is both glory for the people of Israel and a light for the Gentiles who are on the outside looking in. We find that salvation does not come for, through a military leader who stomps us or through a king who thrashes us, but in a child who elicits our love and affection. God becomes small for us. God becomes vulnerable for us. Deliverance is found in the infant child. And do you know what this means for you? It means that you don't have to go the way of violence, but instead you can go the way of the child. You can go the way of peace and love. God has come to us in love so we can walk the way of the loving child. So in a world where Black Friday shoppers shove and where politicians shout, and where ruthless competitiveness is lauded and gentleness is scoffed at, you can go the way of the child. I like the way Stanley Hauerwas, one of our local theologians right over here at Duke, puts it in his book, The Peaceable Kingdom. He writes, as Christians, we must maintain day in and day out that peace is not something to be achieved by our own power. Rather, peace is a gift of God that comes only by being our being a community formed around a crucified savior. And if I could add this morning, an infant child, a savior who teaches us how to be peaceful in a world in rebellion against its true Lord. God has come to us in the infant child, which means 
You don't have to follow in the patterns of violence of this world, but you can follow the infant child in the way of peace. Simeon's way of saying this was, Lord, now you are dismissing your servant in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. You too can rest in the child. There's one part of this passage that we still have to address if we want to make sense of Simeon's song, and it's the ominous after-conversation that Simeon has with Mary. After proclaiming that the child is the promised hope of the world, which will bring salvation both to Jews and Gentiles, Simeon proclaims that the child is destined for the falling and for the rising of many, that he will be opposed and that he will reveal the inner thoughts of everyone and that the sword will pierce Mary's own soul. If I'm being honest, I kind of wish that Simeon would have just stopped at the grand story of salvation for all, but instead he puts it all on the table. This child is a crisis. This child will provoke a decision for many and many will not go the way of Jesus. Even Mary cannot escape unscathed. I imagine her entire life she was haunted by this phrase, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Those have to be the worst words that anyone could hear at a child dedication ceremony. The tension between the promise fulfilled in the child and the deep conflict that emerges out of the child is fitting for our Advent season. At the beginning, I offered that the church knows no other time but the time of Advent, the time of waiting. And Simeon's final conversation takes us right to that place. Here in Simeon's arms is the promise fulfilled. And yet, not all things are made right, and conflict persists. Simeon is well aware that the salvation of God and the person of Jesus does not mean that life will go smoothly. In fact, he actually says just the opposite will happen. This morning, I want to invite you to step fully into the tension which we call Advent, where the promise is fulfilled, and yet the promise is still long awaited. I want you to see both of these realities in the same light. I want you to speak about both of these realities in the same breath. The God who has given himself up for you and who has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ is the same God that continues to bring the falling and the rising of many and who is a stumbling block that cannot be ignored. The infant child is an invitation into a life of trust and into a life that follows in the way of a crucified savior. But listen to the way that Simeon describes the confrontation that Jesus will bring. He writes, this child is destined for the falling and for the rising of many. And the order here is extremely significant, and we can't miss it this morning. An encounter with the infant child means that a part of us must fall, but it's always followed up by the larger promise of rising and redemption. An encounter with the salvation of the world and the person of Jesus Christ means that something in us must fall. But in our falling, God intends to make something new out of our brokenness. This child is a crisis. This child provokes a decision. And a part of us must die when we encounter that God who is on our side. But the call to die to ourselves is a gracious call because God is in the business of transformation so that we can be more like him. 
In just a second, we're going to come to the table and we're going to partake of Christ who is not only destined for our falling and rising, but is the one who fell and rose for us. We're going to set our eyes on the one who willingly descended to us, the one who came in peace in order to make peace among us. And in the meantime, we'll set our gaze on the child of salvation as we wait for all things to be made new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.